0: Well, good morning. good morning. Are you ready to get into the Word together this morning? Well, let me just give a, before we, we go there, I uh, just wanna give you just a little context to this particular uh, sermon series. Uh, the, we're now in week three of this called What's Your Story? And where we're going with this is that we believe that Scripture guides us to this end, that, that it's the work of God that is done in a person's life And that transformation that happens in that person's life and then the story of that being told to others that is the best invitation to somebody else to come and join the journey of pursuing Christ. And so we are looking at how we can see that in Christ's story, that we can connect our story to the story of Christ. So therefore, we can see that it's not just that we can proclaim, like often the testimonies of people are, you know, I I did all these incredible sins, and here's what my sins were. And then we just say, and then I came to Jesus, and I'm different. No, the story is much bigger than that. There is a daily transformation That is going on, and and it's in that daily stuff that people resonate and connect with that, okay, you have dealt with some of the same things I have, but you have found an answer in Jesus. And so we are going there uh, as far as over the next few weeks, looking at the story of Christ, connecting it to our story, and then in the weeks of May, we're gonna literally, as we teach through different things. Biblically, we're gonna bring people on stage and have them share their story so we can connect with your story. And it's all rooted in the story of Christ. And so today we're gonna be answering the question, when you were all alone, was Christ enough? If there's been a season in your life where you've dealt with something very difficult, where you're isolated and nobody seems to be with you anymore, pressure is caving in on you, Is Christ enough? Is Christ enough? You've heard this term called cancel culture. Now, you might think that that's a new idea. It's not a new idea. It's a new maybe term of description, but it's not a new idea. And it basically is this. It's where a punitive public policing of correctness based on some prevalent social code of behavior. So in other words, cancel culture is like using social media and all the aspects of communication and saying, we believe that there's a certain set of lines you should not cross. And when you do, even though they're not pre-written, when you cross those lines, we're going to cancel you out. Now something like that has happened in the last two weeks and it's been in the news. Will Smith. Uh, A heralded actor from Hollywood who's an elite in that circle uh, is on the verge of being canceled. Two weeks ago, you probably, if you are not aware of this, uh, you're probably not watching the news. (laughs) Uh, People were clamoring to be a part of his circle and, and many, but now many have withdrawn because of a mistake that he had. Quickly, when you're being canceled, life can become a lonely place. And for him... It's become extremely lonely. In this instance, he made a mistake, and, it, and while since that point in time, people are withdrawing from him, and some people aren't even talking to him any longer. Those that wanted to be in his circle now are ashamed to, be, to have been a part of it. But not every instance do we see a cancellation Not every instance do we see a cancellation that it's a result of a mistake. Sometimes it's because you're pursuing something honorable. Consider the story of Desmond Doss, a World War II soldier in the United States Army who is the only person to this point that is a conscientious objector to have received the Medal of Honor. He refused to carry a weapon because of his personal understanding of Scripture, yet he wanted to help. So he joined the army as a medic. And the U.S. Army, his platoon leader, many of his uh, fellow soldiers were not kind to him and even tried to remove him, isolating him, canceling him, if you will. He was so completely isolated that he had no advocates when it came the opportunity to present his argument as to why he shouldn't have to fire a weapon. In this particular story, Corporal Doss goes on to save the lives in one particular uh, battle, save the lives of 75 men while he himself had been wounded three times during that battle. We celebrate him now, but when Desmond Doss was all alone in his darkest moments with nobody else to advocate for him, he says that he drew his strength Because people ask, how were you able to do that? Nobody was with you. He says, I drew my strength from the Lord. So have you gone through something where you felt isolated, being withdrawn from, all alone? And if so, was it because of a mistake you made or was it because you're pursuing something good or right or honorable? When you were all alone, where did you draw your strength from? Did you draw it from the Lord, or did you draw it from other people? And if you drew it from other people, was it enough? We're gonna look today in Scripture that Christ found himself isolated, surrounded by people with doubt, rejected even by those closest to him. And we're gonna look about, look at how he drew strength in such a moment. So I'm gonna ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Uh, If you didn't see in the pre-service, there's an opportunity to use a a Bible app called the YouVersion Bible app. You can use that. If you go to the Events tab, you'll find all the scriptures there printed out we're gonna use today. Or if you would like to use a printed version, we have them being passed out right now. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter 26. We are uh, literally, in the text we're going to be reading today, it's going to be during the Holy Week. It is actually just after the upper room experience where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He also presented the first communion. All those things have happened in the room. He's identified that there's going to be a traitor among them. That has happened. And it's just after that moment that they get up to leave and go to the Garden of Gethsemane. So they're going to the Mount of Olives. And while en route, in verse 30, it says they sung a hymn, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane was. So verse 31 says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will fall all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen... I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then all the other disciples said the same. Well, if you know anything about the narrative, I'm sure you're sitting, you're sitting there right now thinking in your head, that's not what's gonna happen. You're all gonna walk away. You're gonna abandon him. And we all know the Peter story, right? If you know scripture, you'll know that he indeed, as Jesus said, deny him three times. And the first denial was, at the, was before a young man teenage girl. Probably the least person to be feared, but yet, in that moment of panic, he disowned Jesus. Jesus knows all these things. I mean, that's the uniqueness of him being both divine and human, is that he could see and foresee all that was going to happen in in the hours to come. And he quotes in this passage that There is going to be a scattering of the sheep. They clearly understood what he was implying when he said this. And keep in mind, they have just had their communion together. They have just had him wash their feet. Now they are walking along this valley towards the Mount of Olives. And Jesus quotes this passage out of Zechariah chapter 13 when he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And an immediate reaction comes from Peter. Not me, not me. And then the rest of his disciples say the same thing. But Jesus knew. He knew what was going to happen. He knew that even though he'd invested for three years into that group of men, that within just hours at his greatest time of need, they would run for their lives in fear. And he'd be all alone. And one of the things that I draw from this is that even though Jesus knew what was going to happen next, that he was going to be abandoned, rejected, disowned by those who were closest to him, even with them saying that we would never do that, Jesus still chose to do the right thing knowing the relational cost. Now, if you could foresee, moments ahead of you and you knew that the decision you're about to make is going to cost you relationally with those who are closest to you, would you go forward? I think this is where pressure shows up more than in any other moment in our lives because we are by nature risk averse. We're risk averse uh, especially relationally. That if the right thing or the honorable thing or the thing we're called to do is right there before us and to choose to do it might cost you your relationships, especially those closest to you, you feel the pressure of the moment. Now some of you and maybe all of us at some point make the decision to do so in spite of the relational costs. But that does not mean that it was not Easy, in fact, it's extremely difficult because I would say that relational loss equals pressure to the fullest end. No one wants to lose those closest to them. So sometimes we have to make decisions that we know those we work with, those we live with, those that we have dined with, those that we have done a lot of life with, that when it comes to a certain moment, a certain decision, or a a task that you must do, and you realize that that may not be received well by those closest to you, the tendency is to want to withdraw from that moment. But Jesus didn't. He chose to go forward. He chose to do the right thing, knowing the relational cost, and then having to deal with that, this group of men that had just said, we would never do that knowing that just just a couple hours later, would. This is the same group that when they were in the upper room that they just left, they were having an argument, which of us are gonna be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus probably, (laughs) in his mind, is like, if you only knew that just a few hours from now, none of you are gonna be great. None of you are gonna be great. I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen, yet he continued to go forward. Let's continue reading in the text in verse 36. It says, when Jesus went with his disciples to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy So the walk to the Garden of Gethsemane was to set up this moment. He has already said and is preparing them to know. And I believe it wasn't just to be prepared for the moment because I think that they were absolutely consumed with other things that they were not appreciating the moment. I think the evidence suggests that through the text that they were completely disconnected from the seriousness and the gravity of this moment. But Jesus is saying all these things to them because they're going to recollect it and be able to draw from it later. That's why you'll find this particular situation written in all the Gospels from various points of view because this moment was so profound. They go to this place that they had been to before. In fact, they had gone there regularly to pray in this garden called Gethsemane. And Gethsemane, is a term that means oil press. And this particular garden was filled with olive trees. And so this was a place that the olives would be put into the press and be crushed and pressed so that the substance of them could pour out, the oil by which they were very reliant upon for their needs in that society. So, if you will, Gethsemane was a place of pressure. A place of pressure to extract the substance of the olive. And what you're going to see in this text is that Jesus is going to the Garden of Gethsemane to be pressed and to see what is extracted from his character and to see what he is truly made of. I would make the case that the moment of Gethsemane was more than 10 times the amount of pressure that he experienced in the wilderness just after his baptism, when for 40 days he fasted and prayed, and he was under temptation being received from the enemy himself. But this moment, you see an anguish that's at a new level, one of the gospels speaks to the fact that in as he's praying that he literally is having blood droplets pour through his sweat. He is being pressed and three times he prays, "Would you pass this cup for me? But not my will, your will be done." Each time, anguishing over the statement, he is being pressed harder and harder but I want to point out something that's important in this moment to see. That when under the most intense point of pressure, where did Jesus draw his strength from? He drew his strength from the Father. He drew his strength from the Father while others withdrew from him. Jesus drew his strength from the Father. What if in this weak moment that Jesus chose to draw his strength from his friends? Now they were good with him up until this moment for the most part, right? They stood by him. You don't see him fleeing at any other point. But keep in mind what was going on in the three previous years. Jesus was establishing his kingdom. He was presenting himself as the true Messiah. So he was speaking with power and authority. He was doing all kinds of miracles. And he even imparted that power to his disciples to cast out demons and heal the sick in his name. It's easy to follow a leader when everything is going well. People will stay near you if they see the favor of the Lord is upon you and everything's going well in your life. It's great to be around a friend like you when everything's good, right? But the cracks are beginning to show. Jesus is drawing more serious. They'd even counsel them, don't go into Jerusalem. That would be a large, a significant mistake. They couldn't get out of their own way. And when Jesus was at his most intense, pressured moment. They were lethargic, withdrawn. They had no sense of the gravity of the moment. Jesus was truly isolated and alone. And he calls out to his father. Three times and three times he yields his will to the father. Drawing upon the strength of the father to make it through what he knows is going to be a horrendous, horrific day. He concludes by saying to his disciples, let's go. Let's go. If you watch sports at all, and you watch on the screen when a significant moment happens uh, for a team, and a player scores a touchdown or makes that big shot like Kansas just did this past week, you know, I had to bring it up at some point. <laughs> you see the mouths of the players. Sometimes you can't hear it, but you see the mouth. Let's go! The only difference in this moment when, when the person that's a, making the big shot or handling the big moment, when Jesus says it and he says, let's go, they left. They left. Let's look at what happens. Verse 47 says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12 arrived. Now keep in mind, they had just had that moment in the upper room where Jesus identified, I've got a betrayer among us. He washes his feet just like everybody else. He serves him communion just like everybody else and then he identifies him. He leaves to go do what he was going to do but now Judas shows back up with Judas, it was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Is the man Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Jesus Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Hold this next verse in your mind because I'll come back to it later. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Friend, do what you came for. Jesus' words. If you have a red letter edition Bible, it's in red. It's not a descriptor because my guess is if it was going to be a description of the moment from one of the disciples, they certainly would not have attached to Judas in this moment, friend. But they were left with no alternative because it came out of Jesus' mouth that they account for what he said as, Judas, you're a friend. Then the men stepped forward and seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back into place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Which is approximately, by the way, 6,000 soldiers. So you can do the multiplication and it's a a lot. (laughs) But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching you and you did not arrest me. But at this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So, we've already acknowledged that Jesus, in spite of the relational cost, went forward, made a decision. I'm going forward regardless of the relational cost. That does not mean, though, that it was not painful, which is why I think it explains part of the intense pressure that he experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane. And during that moment when all those he'd invested in for three years, his closest friends, those he had even served so humbly that night, abandoned him. He is all alone. But I think this speaks to something pretty profound about the character of Christ. That his pursuit of his purpose was superior to any loss especially that which is relational. His pursuit of purpose was superior to any relational loss. This is a little different than the first statement I gave you where it says he chose to do the right thing in spite of relational loss, but this is beyond the right, the right thing. He was aligned to the mission of God upon his life, and therefore anything that was prophesied about him must happen Regardless of the moment. So his pursuit of purpose was always superior. Look at what verse 54 said. It says in verse 54, it says, but how then would the scriptures be fulfilled if he would have called a legions of angels to rescue him in that moment? It wouldn't be fulfilled. And so therefore a violation. So that was never going to be an option. The mission of God must take place. He promised it, so therefore it must. Verse 56, but all of this, you leaving me, you trying to capture me this way, even being betrayed for the price of, of the coins that, and silver that, that Judas had received, the very amount was all prophesied and all happened. And verse 56 says, this was important because all these things must take place so that the prophecies would be fulfilled. And then verse 56, the very end of it, then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Go back to verse 31. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It happened. Just as Jesus said it would, that I'm gonna go forward, I'm gonna pursue what God has called me to do, and you are all going to leave me. In spite of all the promises, in spite of all the promises from those disciples, they abandoned him. It happened just as Jesus said. So what can we draw from in light of this series where we're trying to look at the life of Christ and we apply it to our own? Learning from him as the guide, the example, the model of perfection when it comes to difficult things in life. That when under intense pressure, how did Jesus handle it? When abandoned by everybody else or when something you would need to do might cost you relationally, how do you handle it? Or perhaps, Perhaps you made a mistake and you've lost a lot relationally because of that mistake. Where are you going to draw your strength from? You're going to see in the story of the disciples that their mistake, their mistake that they made, Jesus was gracious in his response to them. He restored them fully. So we can learn there that even Jesus and the Father God are very gracious and merciful to when we make mistakes and, and it cost us relationally even with them and with others. God's a restoring God. But let's apply some of these principles to us. And, and so I would say the first thing we learn is this. God's plan whether it's been specifically prophesied or it's prophecy that was never spoken that we just don't know because like we didn't know exactly the names of the disciples. We didn't know that this was all gonna take place in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's all things that happen as part of the narrative. But we knew that it was going to happen that he would be betrayed. So there are revealed and unrevealed plans of God, but we need to take confidence in this, that God's plans will happen period. And that number two, sometimes as part of pursuing God's plan, it can lead to immense pressure, especially from other people. Do you think it's getting easier to live out the principles and the holiness of God in our society? At least where I'm living, Even in good old Lancaster County, where we have a strong Christian heritage, it's no longer correct to call that which is sin, sin, and that which is holy, holy. So pursuing God's character, his holiness, or even sometimes that mission that he has you specifically on, sometimes that can lead to immense pressure because it's a moment of decision. Is God more important and is calling upon my life and his plans than those around me? Number three, we must draw our strength from the Lord, not from others. I believe it's in that time of the oil press when you are being pressed down and the the pressure's coming in that it's the test of your relational arrows as to where you draw your strength from. When you're under the most intense pressure and you seem to be all alone, where do you tend to go for help, for guidance, for strength, for encouragement? Perhaps it's a parent, a father or a mother. Perhaps it's a friend, a spouse. A child. But what happens when they don't understand? Are you going to draw your strength just from them when they don't get it? You see, I believe ultimately when you're in that pressured moment, it's a testing of your faith. We find in the book of Hebrews that it's through the difficult things of life that our faith is tested. Hard things lead us to a place of recognizing that all others will fail at some point, but God never will. So we draw our strength from the Lord. Lastly, I believe we learn this in this story. When you project forward and you see it even kind of Embedded in this text in verse 32 when it says, After I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. In other words, he's planning a reunion. He's inviting re communion with them ahead of the scattering, ahead of the abandonment, ahead of the disowning. You see, Jesus chose forgiveness over resentment when going forward with others. Forgiveness cleanses the heart, allows for opportunity to go forward. But if you hold on to resentment, you can't go forward. You're stuck, you're stuck because you're resenting the other people for maybe their actions. But what I see here is that Jesus kept the door open with his disciples by the way he handled the relational failures that they were about to commit. Even calling Judas friend. When Jesus first encounters Peter, we'll speak more to this in a couple weeks, but when he first encountered Peter, what does he do? He doesn't say, huh, you disown me just like I told you. No, he didn't do that at all. He said, Peter, do you love me? gave the opportunity for Peter to draw back into him. So in the pressure cooker of life, we must draw our strength from God who has the plans that will prevail. And then with, in regards to each other, we hold on to forgiveness. We hold on to hope, not resentment. Because we may not know what the Lord may wanna do through some of those relationships going forward. I've been praying for you because I don't know what pressures you're feeling. I don't know where you've felt abandoned or hurt by others leaving you. You might even feel like you're abandoned by God, but I've been praying that God will extract from you a deeper character under the pressure so that you can discover the joy of the strength that God provides and not through the weakness of yours or others that has its limitations. Let's pray. Father God, I acknowledge that there are times when I've been under pressure that what's extracted from me is not holy. There are times when I even operate against what I know you would want me to do, but I operate differently because I want to I want to do what will be better received by others. In many cases, Lord, relational cost directs our steps rather than causing us to draw upon you and you alone. We need you. (laughs) We need you every day, every moment. So, Lord, speak to our hearts in this time. Cause our hearts to draw more closely to Christ, the author and perfecter, the originator of our faith. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. Would you stand, please? This song is a testimony
1: of our need for a Savior and his provision for us. Lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy and.
0: says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain Paul said that all things he considers rubbish but for the sake of knowing Christ all the more he even said he'd be willing to give up his salvation so that his brothers and sisters of Israel could come to know Christ that's the story of Paul through, through much pressure, the more and more he was pressed against, even by the church, when they weren't sure initially if he was truly one of them, what kept coming out was his love for Jesus. And then that's where he drew his strength from. And so I trust that today, that as you might be considering some of the situations you're a part of, maybe where there's a relational brokenness, maybe there's a decision you have to make, Maybe you've made a mistake and you need to draw strength from somewhere. It's good to draw strength from fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but ultimately it needs to go higher than that. Draw from Jesus. Draw from Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Today, if you'd like to pray with someone, we'll have people in the encounter room, which is to my left, on the way out the door. And they'd be glad to pray with you about anything that's upon your heart. Also, after second service today, we'll be baptizing several people and we'd welcome you to that. Go in the grace of the Lord and may if the pressure is coming upon you, may what come out of you be more than just the substance of you, but the substance of Christ. Amen. You are dismissed.